Good morning, everyone. How many of you, that was the first time you heard Essence sing? Yeah? Yeah. Impressive, isn't it? What a talent. Did you make it, uh, you, you, you did the American Idol thing, right? And you got past those jerks at the table, right? Right? You got to the second stage. Listen, I wouldn't have been brave enough to even walk in front of them, so congratulations on that. If you have your Bibles, turn it up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 are going to be our verses for the morning. While you're turning there, I want to say, um, just want to give a word uh, of encouragement to the church and to the pastors and uh, who are going to be taking over in the future. Uh, I was thinking on Wednesday night uh, when Johan was up here teaching I, I was thinking the word trust. I trust him. I trust Dave. These are men who take the word of God very seriously. They live their life according to the word of God. They will put in the effort every week to be servant and to be teacher to you. And they will be faithful to the word of God. I know that. And, and that is uh, something that you can be encouraged about as we go into the future. So I look forward to hearing great things about the church as we move into the future. <clears throat> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father and Lord God, it is you who is the Lord of all heaven and all earth. You are the Lord of our hearts. Even if we haven't given our hearts to you, you are still sovereign Lord over our hearts. Paul tells us that we are like vessels of clay. You choose whether or not to have one vessel be used in honorable ways and another vessel to be used in dishonorable ways, but we are all in the cupboard of your sovereignty. No one will escape your sovereignty. And so we come to you today to ask you, according to your mercy, according to your grace, and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as we come into your throne room, to ask you simply this, that you, Lord, open hearts today. Lord, we ask that you open hearts and open eyes. Give us the eyes that we need to see the spiritual truths. Give us the hearts that we need to receive those truths. Your word tells us that these pastors, these prophets, these apostles are but sowers and waterers. But you, Lord God, give the growth. This is your church. And the only reason why the gates of hell will not prevail against your church is because you are the Lord of the church. No man can ever protect the church from anything. But you, Lord, have promised and your word is truth. Your word never fails that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Lord, I do call in this final moment, in this final message, I do call this church to make Christ a priority 
to make your word a priority, to make obedience to your word a priority, to make service a priority, to make following Jesus Christ the way Jesus Christ lived his life here on earth a priority. I do call them not to forget the gospel truths that we have preached and spent so many years studying. I pray, Lord, that you would make that happen. Lord, what are we but vessels? It is your spirit that gives us life everlasting. And it is your very image upon us that gives us worth and dignity. Our worth and our dignity is not in ourselves, not in our things, but very derivative of the very fact that we bear your image. And so, Lord, let us look to you this morning and glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about what I would preach this week, thought about the various passages where apostles were leaving churches and Prophets were separating, or apostles were separating from churches, and I thought about talking about those passages. But when I began to think about <clears throat> what I wanted to leave with you on this final Sunday of our relationship, of our relationship as pastor and church, I wanted to leave with you the simple truth. The simple truth that should be the truth that motivates every one of us in our lives to be here to get up every morning and to love our neighbor, beginning with our spouse, beginning with our children. The simple truth that helps us motivate or motivates us to love our enemies and to love those who persecute us. And that is believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in a name, what does that even mean? A name? We have years and years. History has thousands upon thousands of stories of great men. And we're never told to believe on their name. Never. But Jesus Christ, we are told to believe on his name. We are told to not simply believe with our minds. To agree with. In our disposition, we are called to entrust our lives to him. By walking after him. I wanted to read this passage this morning. And I wanted to just open up and just preach this simple gospel sermon about Jesus Christ. So let's look at the passage this morning. I want to just break it apart and look at several thoughts that came to me as I read the passage this week. The passage begins by saying Jesus did many other signs. Jesus was a prolific witness to who he was. Many people say they want to see God, and if they were to see God, they would believe in him. The fact of the matter is that even if you see God, it doesn't mean that you will believe in him. His own disciples at times were unsure about who he was. There was one parable where a rich man died and went to hell and a poor man died and went to heaven and he begged the man in hell begged Abraham to send someone back from the dead to tell his family about 
Jesus so that they might believe and so that they might not go to hell, but that they might be in God's covenant people. And the response is very interesting. The response from Abraham from heaven was this, let them listen to the word of the prophets. If they don't listen to the Bible, then not even someone coming back from the dead will change their heart. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But that word of God was built on the testimony of Jesus Christ, who really lived, who really walked this earth. His message, that is Christ's message and miracles, his sermons and signs, were his testimony to not just those who saw them, but to the whole world, that God loves the world so much. That he sent his son in the form of human flesh. Sometimes we assume that the Bible tells us everything about Jesus' life. But this was certainly not the case. We're free to speculate about what Jesus' life might have been like. But never at the cost of contradicting the revealed word of God. This was certainly John's point. That Jesus did many other things in his life. And that those things certainly would not contradict what was stated and what was revealed about him in all of the gospel message. John's point was only this. That Jesus did more and more of the same amazing things that are testified to in his gospel. It wasn't that they were different messages. It wasn't that they were different or pointing to different truths. They all pointed to the same truth. He particularly gave us seven signs in his gospel. But the fact was, the purpose of all of those was to point you to entrust your life to him. John tells us in the next chapter that Jesus performed so many signs that if all of those signs had been written about, that there would not be enough room in all of the world to contain the books. A hyperbole for sure. But more than anything, it was an encapsulation of the purpose of John's work, which was namely to tell the story that Jesus was more than a man, that he was more than a teacher, That he was more than a prophet. That he was more than a moralist. That he was more than just one great leader. That he was the true word of God. The one who was with God because he is God. The one who made all things and through him not a thing was made that has been made. The one who by the word of his power spoke things into existence that did not exist. The Logos, the very reason for life and meaning itself is in Christ Jesus. Every star that twinkles in the night sky is there to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, the creator of the world. This is not just a man 
And it's not another story about a man. And it's not another story about a religious character, about a religious leader. It's not about another story of how to be moral and live this life. It is about the meaning of life itself. And the meaning of life itself is not a theory. It is in a person, Jesus Christ. And this is why John can say, if you want life, Believe on his name. But believe on the testimony about him. Because it is here where we have eternal life if we entrust ourselves to him. Jesus did many other signs. And you might be thinking, why even tell us that Jesus did many other signs that you, John, thought weren't important enough to fit in this book? But John knew that the other signs were just as important as the ones that he had written about. But the purpose was to get his audience to understand that they will have no excuse for failing to believe on his name. If you haven't believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because he did not do many other signs. It is not because they weren't told to you. Trustworthy men have come to you and have told you of the stories of Jesus Christ. Have told you of the many signs he performed and that he performed many other. It was Jesus Christ who put the world on its head. You have no excuse if you haven't believed on the name of Jesus Christ. You might think this morning that John's gospel is just one of literally thousands of stories about amazing men who did amazing things. Certainly, Jesus was the most amazing person who ever lived. But if you stop there with a Jesus who is simply amazing and not Messiah, you have not entrusted yourself on his name. John's point was not to tell the story about another man. It was to testify to all who live, those who were living in that day, and those of you who sit in this auditorium this very morning, to testify to you that there is life in no other name, and that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no man will ever come to God except by entrusting himself to the name of Jesus Christ. The passage goes on. It says, in the presence of his disciples. Jesus did many other signs that aren't mentioned in this book, but he did them in the presence of his disciples. To be sure, John was not the only person to tell us about the works of Jesus. You can open up your Bible and you'll see that there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even a child could read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see that there are differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John. The first three Gospels are called synoptic and that they have the same vision. They have sort of the same thought, though they do not have the same thesis. But they have so much of the same material. John's is very different. 
It wasn't as if one author came and wrote the Bible, though of course there is the one Holy Spirit who is behind Scripture. But the Word of God, this Jesus Christ was testified to by many men, by many women. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also told us about other signs and wonders that Jesus performed. John didn't tell us about the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew did. John didn't tell us about the young Jesus teaching in the temple, but Luke did. Luke did not tell us about the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into grape juice. He turned water into wine. I was running away from the Southern Baptists who were going to be coming after me after this. There are at least two different occasions where Jesus fed thousands of people by the miracle of multiplication and so on and so on. There are more stories than even the stories that we have in John's gospel. So that if John's gospel about the amazing signs that Jesus showed to prove that he was Messiah, if John's isn't enough, go to Matthew, go to Mark, go to Luke. So while all that Jesus did, his ministry, his many teachings, his many miracles were written about by John, there was so much more written about Jesus by his other disciples. Each and every account of Jesus written about by his disciples, each and every word he uttered according to Jesus' other's disciples was in perfect complement with what John testified to about Jesus in his gospel. You know, there are variations in these, in these books, in the four gospels, but those variations are never contradictions. They all have the same goal, that your hard heart will believe on the name of Jesus Christ. Some of us get upset about whether or not there was one angel or two angels at the resurrection. Because one gospel writer says an angel said, and another gospel writer says there were two angels there. That's not a contradiction. Every time I go to lunch with Johan, there's two of us here, but when it comes time to pay the bill, I pay it. One last one, boy. I know, you got time. You're going to have a field day. No, that's... But the point is, it's not a contradiction. There were two of us there, but there's only one who speaks. But, but it does... But listen to me. These men were pleading with the world to believe on the name. And they're pleading through my message this morning with you today to believe on the name. What's so remarkable about John's point about the signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples is that each and every disciple of Jesus, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. That is to say that Jesus' apostles 
were so convinced that he was the son of God that they were willing to suffer the loss of this life so that they might receive the eternal life that believing on the name of Jesus procured. Fox's Book of Martyrs, a 16th century work on the persecutions that Christians have suffered for 1,600 years at that time, testifies to the horrific executions that were suffered by each of these men who were in the presence of the Messiah. Philip was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified. You know, prison was just as bad, if not worse, back then. They didn't have lawyers who came and talked about prisoners' rights in those days. They didn't have electricity and cable. All of the things that go on in prison today went on back then and were worse. Nobody cared. They didn't live in a society where you were innocent until proven guilty, and once you were proven guilty, you still had rights. They didn't care. Life was cheap in Rome. And these men, even those who weren't executed, who were in prison for the name of Jesus Christ, suffered the loss of this life. And were tortured for Christ. Matthew suffered martyrdom being slain with a halberd, which is a spear and an axe. That's a combined weapon in the city of Nataba in AD 60. James, the brother of Jesus, at the age of 94, was beat and stoned by the Jews. And finally had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. It's a piece of hardwood with nails in it. With the name of Jesus. But, but not only that, the name of his brother. It wasn't that he died to protect his brother. His brother was already dead and raised. Matthias was stoned at Jerusalem and then finally beheaded. Andrew was taken and crucified on a cross. The two ends of which were fixed transversely in the ground. Hence the derivation of the term St. Andrew's cross. In other words, the cross was more like an X, and Andrew was crucified. By the way, those of you who think that they all wore loincloths, don't be a prude. Crucifixion was an execution that not only destroyed the man, but it was to make a mockery of the man while he died. The suffering went well beyond physical suffering and hardship. To the loss of even human dignity. Mark, who was not an apostle, but was a convert and cohort of Peter, was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria at the great solemnity of Serapis, their idol, ending his life under their merciless hands, says Fox. Peter, according to Jerome, tells us that he was crucified with his head being down and his feet upward, himself so requiring because he was, in his own words, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. Paul was led out to the city of the city to the place of execution where he, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Jude, the brother of James, 
was commonly called Thaddeus, was crucified in Edessa. Bartholomew was at length cruelly beaten and crucified by, according to Fox, impatient idolaters. Thomas was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. Luke is supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by the priest of Greece. John was banished to the late Isle of Patmos by Emperor Domitian, where he wrote the book of Revelation. He is the only one to escape violent death. And here's how Fox ends his account of the first chapter of the early persecution of Christ's disciples. Here's what he says. Notwithstanding, all these continual persecutions and horrible punishments, the church daily increased, deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and of men apostolical and watered plenteously with the blood of the saints. History is filled with stories of people suffering themselves to death for the sake of their beliefs. Even for the sake of their leaders. Muslims were executed during the Inquisition for their beliefs contrary to the Roman Catholic Church. Patrick Henry famously testified to the president that he would be willing to die for the sake of the principle of liberty. In that sense, the disciples weren't any different than any other person who ever died for their beliefs. But what is unique, however, about the disciples' martyrdom is that these men died not simply for their beliefs, not simply for their master, but because they were convinced by the signs Jesus performed, none greater than the resurrection. Scripture tells us that all of Jesus' disciples deserted him at his crucifixion. What is more, after his death, the Bible tells us that they were all together in a home with the doors locked for fear that the Jews would kill them too. Thomas didn't believe until he felt the scars of the risen Savior. James, Jesus' brother, didn't believe until after the resurrection. The, that his brother believed he was the Son of God, that ought to be one of the greatest testimonies. If David Summers, who I love, came to me and said, I am God's son, <laughs> you a son of something, but you ain't the son of God, boy. I love my brother. I'd die for my brother. He'd die for me. He looks for reasons to die for me. What did he say? I want to go die for you. I mean, he's just that type of guy. He's never seen a hill not worth dying on. But he doesn't believe I'm the son of God. He used to tell me I was the adopted son of James and Sandra. James, his own brother, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Only after the resurrection. 
Peter denied being one of Jesus' disciples three times to save his neck. All of these men were at one time great cowards, but after the resurrection of Christ, their cowardice was replaced with great boldness before their enemies. When the Jewish rulers commanded Peter and John not to testify any further about Jesus, this is how Peter responded. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These signs were written... They were testified by John and by the apostles. Their lives were graphically lost. Gratuitously lost. According to man's standards. All that you and I might believe. Have you considered the blood of the martyrs recently? Have you considered why these men... Human beings just like you and me, maybe even worse than you and me, were willing to suffer and die such horrific deaths, not simply for their beliefs, but for what they had seen and heard. I submit to you this morning, if you deny the testimony of Jesus that was delivered to the world by these apostles in this Bible, you deny Christ himself and have forsaken the forgiveness for sins that is freely offered in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Finally, our passage says this. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel not to sell books, but to testify to the whole world to the signs of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, he suffered. Pushed out of society ostracized from the Roman Empire, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Some people say, well, at least he wasn't executed. I'm not so sure that losing your head swiftly was not a better execution than being exiled to an island. And here's John writing a book about Jesus, the one in whose name he has suffered the loss of all things. The disciples testified and died for what they saw and heard Jesus do. But what about you? Have you believed their testimony? Are you willing this morning to entrust your whole life to Jesus? And that whole life means everything. And the word entrust means giving over, giving up, letting Christ be Lord, and not you. You think biblical sexuality is outdated, 
But that's because you're the Lord of your life rather than Christ. If Christ is the Lord of your life, if Jesus Christ has control and authority over your life, even the desires that you desire most above all things fall and submit to his will. Even what you think is right. What you think is common sense. Have you believed and trusted their testimony? I'm not asking you the question, are you willing to die for Christ? Because no one in here knows whether or not they would. And in that moment of that day, if you are required to give your life for the name of Jesus, even if you do, it will be glory to God when you do, who has given you what you did not have in yourself. Make no mistake about it, it was God who sovereignly put these men's neck on the chopping block so that we might believe. Have you trusted? Have you given your whole life to Christ? Is he in control of your pocketbook, your job? Is he in control of your attitude about the local church and about Christians? Does he control your ability to pray for those who persecute you? Oh God, you know. You of everyone knows. How I resisted you. How could you tell me to pray for the one who persecutes me and to love those who hate me, to not repay evil with evil or reviling with reviling, but to repay evil with love? I don't want it. But you are Lord. What does my want have to do if I'm a slave to righteousness? You are my master. And so I pray. And every one of us in here who thinks we're above it, who thinks there isn't something that you, Lord Jesus, have control over our lives that we do not want to let go and that we want to hold on to because we think we are sovereign over it. Today, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, give us what we do not have, namely the ability to trust you with everything. If you believe in the testimony of these men this morning, I make no promises about your life getting better. To be honest with you, if you entrust your life to Jesus, it might just get worse. I just got through telling you about men who lost their lives. Oh, 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 you, you say, tell us things we want to hear. There's no way to grow a church when you begin to tell people that coming to Christ means suffering for his namesake. Oh, but it does. Your life might get worse. Every single Christian has been called to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not walk up to people and simply say, do you know God loves you? 
This is, this is like the evangelistic tactic. You walk up to people and say, you know God loves you? No, Jesus didn't do that. I mean, I, I can't help but think that there's not a better evangelist than Jesus. But maybe you guys have a better idea of who evangelizes to the message of Jesus better than Jesus. But you know what Jesus said? Take up your cross. Guess what? As you just saw, many of them really did take up their cross. He didn't mean a gold pendant around your neck. He meant the suffering that it is going to take for you to give yourself to Christ. And I don't just mean the suffering that comes from without. I mean the suffering that comes from within. Where you have to submit when you don't want to. All Christians have been called to suffer. Jesus said, the servant isn't better than the master. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. Oh, before you come to Christ today, count the cost. It is the suffering of the loss of your right to command anything in your life outside of Jesus Christ. Suffering of Christ from without, that is persecution, will vary in degree. You might simply be ostracized by your co-workers. That's why you don't want to talk about Jesus around the water cooler. Because you want to be invited to the party. You might be called names and mocked by the world for your choice to be sexually chaste. Which, by the way, I don't know why we always have to talk about our sexuality. We act in America like that's it. That's all there is to life. Our sexual identity is our identity. I'm Bob and I'm gay. Thanks, Bob. I, I don't need to know. I don't walk up to people and say, I'm Andrew and I'm heterosexual. You can tell. Here come the little babies all around me. But in America, we do that. We're identified by our sexuality. But when we follow Jesus, he has his own, the sexuality of the holy people of God. And you might be called names and mocked for it. And by the way, you may not want to follow it in your own spirit. I guarantee something you probably don't. You might lose a job. You might lose a friend. You might lose all your friends. You might lose family members and maybe even your life. But make no bones about it. The servant is not greater than the master. If the world persecuted Jesus, it will persecute you also. You say, that's bad news. Yeah, if it stopped there, that would be bad news. It was the Apostle Paul who said that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are above all men to be pitied. Why? Because of their sufferings. I used to, my, my Bible teacher used to say, you know, he used to say, even if Christianity weren't true, I'd still live my life according to Christian principles because it's the best way to live your life. Really? I gotta tell you, 
That love your enemy stuff is rubbish. That sexual chastity, self-control, not going after greed and ill-gotten gain is rubbish. Unless Jesus raised from the dead. Paul says we are above all men to be pitied. But I can guarantee you some good news this morning. Namely, that if you entrust yourself to Jesus, you will have life. That's what John says. If by believing in his name, you will have life. Now, here's the interesting thing. In Greek, they have two words for life. They have bios and they have zoe. And bios means our physical life. And in zoe, it means in a scriptural context, it means eternal life that begins here on earth. Oh, your body will fail you. Your body will die. Your heart will give up. You will get cancer. You will not live by us forever. You can spend every dime on your health. You can eat vegetables every day. You can lay off a McDonald's and you will not get out of this life alive. Your bios will die. But Jesus didn't promise you bios. Which is why I despise pastors who preach you your best life now. Because they are preaching to you bios. But Jesus promises you, Zoe, eternal life. Life that begins here and now. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, the old things have passed away and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Galatians 2, 20. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, I have been crucified. Excuse me. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I promise you today that Jesus gives you Zoe if you have faith in his name. It's why when our loved ones do die, which they will, it's why we can stand at their grave with hope because they have accepted Jesus would give them Zoe, eternal life. It's why we can be hopeful when we get the worst news ever. You don't even know what it is to see the witness of Christ until you see a Christian suffering. Even to the point of death. All the while praising God the whole time. Why? Because God promised you eternal life. Not a better life now. Jesus said you could have a, not only life, but an abundant life, not abundant possessions. You know what the great theologian, Notorious B.I.G., said? 
more money, more problems. Yo, say what you want about him. Brother was speaking the truth. Baby, baby, I'm telling you. Every time I look up, there's another bill coming in. For things that I don't need. Jesus had promised an abundant life, but not abundant possessions. He promised the loss of those possessions and a cross in this life for the eternal life in the next. What is this life? It is not by us that God promises, but eternal life. It is the life at rest in the Savior who we know will one day raise our mortal bodies to life everlasting. Our physical bodies will fail, but to all who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be given everlasting life. Will you believe John's testimony this morning about Jesus? One last time I have with you, I have one last word to ask you. I've been watching some of you in this pulpit, from this pulpit, for over five years. And I wonder about you. Have you entrusted your life to Jesus? I don't mean you just believed it with your brain, but you're showing it. There's real transformation. There's real fruit. John made it very clear in his other letters. He said this, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son has not life. These things were written, and these things have been preached to you on this day so that you might entrust your life to Jesus, believing on his name, and so that you might have life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is one last thing. It is the thing that matters most. It is your Holy Spirit who breathes life into us. There are dead hearts today. Holy Spirit, breathe life into them through the preaching of your word. Amen.